Sometimes, talent, along with persistence and a serious work ethic, meets a moment. The stars align, the timing is right, and voila, just like you pictured it. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. I'm Bud Mishkin. Jane Green was already an established magazine and newspaper writer at the age of 27 when she quit her job and gave herself three months to write a book and get a book deal. At the time, she noticed something missing in the books that were being published, stories primarily for women. Some 25 years later, she's sold millions of books around the world, and many of them have ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. Her latest project also revolves around storytelling, but of the audio kind. She's the founder of the podcast network Emerald Audio, distributed by Gemini 13, the same company that distributes this podcast. Emerald Audio is designed to give authors and female creators a new medium to share their stories. As we begin our conversation, you're probably aware that her native England has had one or two rather famous writers in its history. But for inspiration for Emerald Audio, Jane points to the story she grew up listening to in London on the radio. One of the things I loved growing up were the old radio plays um, that were fully cast. So it was a cast of actors. Um, it, it was scripted. You had all the sound effects. And I remember plenty of times when I couldn't get out the car because I was so immersed in whatever I was listening to. And actually, I don't really like audiobooks. I find I find it very hard. I can listen to non-fiction on audiobook, but for fiction, I find there's too much exposition. I'm too reliant on on what the narrator's going to be like. Um, and so it's it's quite hard for me to listen to audiobooks. And I realized, well, this why don't we do that? Why don't we recreate those radio plays? Um, can I assume that these radio plays were on the BBC? Radio. They were when I was growing up, because as you can hear, so, this is, yes, a London accent. So I think um, for, for our generation or people generally of our generation, I think Americans uh, of a previous generation understood the power of storytelling on radio uh, before really the advent of television. But for my generation, you know, we grew up radio, radio was music, radio was sports, but not really storytelling. So can you give us some notion of the power of storytelling on the BBC and 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 what part of British culture that played? Yeah, we well we we had the uh, the first soap operas started on radio, and actually right. they were developed for the 1950s housewife who was so busy cooking and cleaning she couldn't take that time out of her day to sit in front of the TV set and watch watch a a, a show, and right. she also wanted something to occupy her mind while she was cooking and cleaning. And so they developed these these audio dramas. And in the 50s, they were most frequently sponsored by soap companies, and hence the name soap operas. And that's how soap operas started. And so actually, it's it, I, I feel as if it's almost come full circle. Here we are in 2022, and today's modern woman may not be busy cooking and cleaning, but she's definitely busy multitasking, doing a million things. Um, were those radio stories still big when you were growing up, when you were well, a kid? They, they then became um, just radio. BBC Radio 4 would always have these these plays, um, and I would just tune in when I was driving. 
Um, so, and, and it's funny because a lot of, actually, it's so interesting to me that you point that out because I presume everybody's automatically going to know what I'm talking about when I say radio plays. <laughs> but now you're helping me understand why nobody seems to understand what it is we're doing. Um, because well, I think we, I think we have that here or we had that here and, and people who study this know that, uh, you know, the biggest early television stars in America were all radio stars and there were radio stories, but I, I think it's a, a generation earlier for Americans. Uh, and that notion of plays on the radio, as you talk about with the BBC, that's something that's kind of lost on us here, yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I think what's so interesting is if you look at how the podcast, podcasts and and audiobooks have just taken off enormously. And I think it's because we're all we're so busy. We don't have time to sit down and read a book in the way we used to, or sit down and watch a show, perhaps at night. But meanwhile, we're all doing stuff, and so I, I mean, I'm listening to something all day long. There is something right. filling my ears all day long, um, and so I realised as well that as publishing changes, we we still need story, and and why not approach all of my friends who are mostly New York Times bestselling authors, and ask them to come up with story ideas. And that's what we're doing. And you, but you yourself, the ironical, ironic part is that you yourself as a writer and a New York Times bestselling author, you want people to be able to sit and spend a half an hour with a book or even more if possible. And based on how well your books have done, they are doing so. Yes, yes. I, I Well, now I'm asking them to, to just devote half an hour to to listen um right. and of course the beauty of it as well is that it's free so um and that's part of the problem with publishing as well and part of the decline is that the publishers are still charging 27 dollars for a hardback and when you've got amazon putting out content for anywhere between 99 cents and 5.99 you just can't no one's going to pay 27 dollars for a book unless they are a, a, an adoring fan and and it's just we're being sort of priced out of the market it's brave new world mm. brave new world mm. tell me about the home that you grew up in and was the notion of writing or writers were they venerated in that home? What kind of books did you have around when you were, uh, what kind of books did you see that your folks were reading or where it was writing something that you were aware of as you're growing up? Well, I, I wasn't aware of writing, um, but I, I grew up in a place, I grew up in London in a it, sort of a, London is, is like a series of villages all mm -hmm. knitted together. So my village was Hampstead and Hampstead has long been known as a center for um, intellectuals and academics and artists and writers. Um, my parents weren't particularly, but they were big readers. Um, I wouldn't say particularly, it, it wasn't hugely highbrow, but we had tons of books. And I, I was a child who never felt very comfortable in her skin. And so the place where I found my solace and joy was within the pages of books. And of course, I tear through them at a rate of knots. And as soon as I'd finished whatever it was that I was reading, I'd go down to my parents to the living room, we had bookshelves along one wall, and I'd I'd just pull out whatever sort of inappropriate book I could find. Um, <laughs> I, actually, I wasn't looking for inappropriate. I was just looking for something I would enjoy. But but half the time they were wildly inappropriate. Um, but and I would I would read them. I remember I read Valley of the Dolls. I read The Thornbirds. 
um, King Flicks, all kinds, Roald Dahl, lots of Roald Dahl, his books for adults, which I, I really loved. Um, but I was forever stuck in a book. And, and that is really how I became a writer. I didn't think I'd become a writer. I thought I'd become an artist. But okay. um, my love of reading and, and my, my uh, love of storytelling persisted. You, you found solace in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, as you, I, think that, I think that uh, reading fiction offers either a window or a mirror. You're either able to look into other worlds that you know nothing about, or or they 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 act as a mirror reflecting your own life. And so there was a healthy mix of the two of them, I think. Was there one more than the other or, or pretty Probably, much mixed? I would say growing up, it was certainly a window rather than a mirror. Um, and actually, when I wrote my first book, I which was, uh, gosh, 1998, um, I, I, that book was written as a mirror. Um, I was just writing about my life and the lives of my girlfriends, and it didn't really exist then. It, there were, that didn't exist in literature. They, there, there were no women's books that accurately reflected the lives of women at that time. Um, you know, if you cast your mind back, books for women tended to be very over the top. They were Jackie Collins and and uh, Judith Krantz and. I mean, we call them bonk busters now, but they were all shoulder pads and glitz and and sex and. What what was that one more time? A bunk buster. Bonk, B O N K. Okay. Is that an American? Do you know what that means in America? Is that an English? Uh, uh, I bl- I believe I do know what it means. Austin, uh, so. Austin Powers would say shag. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bunkbusters, I like that. Yeah, it was a bunkbuster uh... rather than a blockbuster. They because there was so much sex, <laughs> but they were well... all they were very glitzy and aspirational. But what they weren't were relatable. Um, right. And and all of a sudden, Nick Hornby wrote High Fidelity, which was the story of every man. And I remember thinking, well, hang on, no one's doing this for women. Of course, little did I know that a mile up the road from me in Ladbrook Grove, Helen Fielding was in her flat writing Bridget Jones's diary. Um, But I and I got very lucky. My first book came out a couple of months after Bridget Jones and, and it was the right timing. And Bridget Jones was such an enormous hit that the publishers all started to look for similar types of books. And and yeah. I happen to have written a book about four single women living in London. That's great. Yes, you're right, because Nick Hornby, and I'm mostly a nonfiction reader, but Nick Hornby and Fever Pitch and High Fidelity and About a Boy, he, he, he speaks to a certain man who has a wide variety of interests. And so it's interesting that you make that connection. As you go off to university, uh, do you have an idea of what's going to be, or is it all kind of a mystery at that point in terms of what the future is going to be? I, I always thought I'd be an artist. My, I went off to study fine art. Um, I presumed I would be an artist or a designer of some kind. I, I think I, I at times wanted to be a fashion designer or a graphic designer, um, but but my love of of books. Well, my my love of writing, really, and, and I think it was very instinctive. I never took a writing class. Um, just, I never, I never took a writing class. Um, but because I I had been such a huge reader when I left university, I 
I had a sort of first job as a marketing assistant. And I remember um, my boss saying he, he'd always give me his things to rewrite. And he'd say, you're such a good writer. And his girlfriend happened to work for a magazine called Just 17. And he said to me, you know what, you should meet her, you you should be a writer. And, and I met her, and she commissioned a fun quiz from me. And then I started freelancing. And I within a really short space of time, I was freelancing for Cosmopolitan and, um, and all these great magazines. And you're how old at that point? I was 20, 21, I guess. Wow. That's pretty good. Mm. You talk about writers have to wait and wait and wait and wait for whatever reason. Getting stuff in in Cosmo and other places at 21, that's pretty great. Yeah. And then, and then I went into, then I fell into newspapers. Um, And uh, so I was, uh, I ended up writing features, women's features for newspapers. Um, And I was with, I wrote a lot for the Daily Mail, which I I still do actually all these years later. Um, and I ended up as a as a writer on the Daily Express. And then when I was 27, um, a girlfriend of mine who was not a writer, she was an art historian, suddenly announced that she had written a book. And I went, oh, that's that's lovely. And then she, <laughs> that she had a book deal. And I went, hang on a minute. I'm the writer. If she can get a book deal, I can definitely I should be doing this. I can get one. And I actually left my job at the Express. And I gave myself three months to write a book and get a book deal. Um, which now, was... what is that about? And where do you where do you think that comes from? That notion of I'm going to throw you know cast fate to the wind, and I'm quitting my job, and th- this is going to happen. Can you can you be analytical about that and where that comes from? So I think that I, I was not a happy child. Um, and I was a child who was very much who felt invisible. I didn't have a voice um, and I wasn't permitted to have a voice. And so um, I think that it left me with this enormous need to be seen and validated, which made me fearless. Um, and so I, I just I was possessed by this phenomenal drive and a need to succeed in in something and be seen um and i think that's what it was so um i and in every other area of my life i i had no confidence whatsoever but somehow in work i just always presumed that it would work out and it always did having interviewed more than a few writers and, and and that's a blessing uh, through the years because I'm fascinated by the you know creative process and the moments when things are maybe not going so well and what pushes you through to keep on going to pursue the passion. I've also asked them about uh, the the conversation at home, perhaps when uh, when they have to tell their folks uh, I'm I'm going to be a writer. Was there such a conversation? Yeah. And was it a tough was it a tough uh, not ask but was it. What was that conversation like for you? Well, I so I I was already a journalist, so I, I and I was absolutely you know completely self supporting from from twenty one onwards. Um, and then when I left my job to write the book, I I remember my father rolling his eyes, and I remember going to his office to photocopy that first manuscript to send it off to agents, and I ran into him on the stairs, and he said, 
And I remember clutching this manuscript and saying, this is my baby. This is going to be, you know, my future. And he said, well, that's all well and good, darling. But when are you going to get a proper job? You know, he, uh. he just he wanted a secure salary and a pension. And and uh, um, and then that manuscript ended up being part of an auction um, and I ended up accepting a preemptive bid that was about four times my annual salary. In fact, I <laughs> and I remember calling my dad to tell him what the bid was. And he and I just sat on the phone giggling. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there was something very lovely about that. I think there must be something, especially with writers, people in the creative world. The writer Jacqueline Woodson has told me a similar story. Uh, the comedian Robert Klein has told me a similar story about when he, he played Carnegie Hall and it was standing room only and standing ovation. And at the end, his mother turns to someone and says, well, if this doesn't work out, at least he can go back to teaching. You know, and he's just, <laughs> he's just played Carnegie Hall. Um, that notion, I, I've read about that, that notion that that first book is part of a, there's a different groups are trying to get the book. Um, so is, um, did that catch you by surprise? Did you did you expect that there would be more struggle in terms of that first book? I no, and I I, I wish I could say I, I took all of it for granted. I had no idea. I was so naive in some ways. I just presumed, oh well, this happens to everybody. I because I never <laughs> I didn't have that struggle. And actually I look back now at the career that I had and things like People magazine used to come over every year they do like a spread on like five pages they'd come over for these seven hour photo shoots with hair and makeup people and and I just thought that this was par for the course I re mm -hmm. I had absolutely no idea and also remember there was no internet there was no so that so I had no idea what the writer's life was like. I had no idea what other writers were going through. And I didn't know any writers really in the beginning. Um, so I had nothing to compare it to. So I think I just absolutely took it for granted. And what I will say is I would give my eye teeth now. <laughs> I would I would sell my firstborn for the opportunities I had them and had no idea how important they were. And how well, rare I, it how, how do you mean? You, you lost me there. How do you mean? Oh, in in what mean, sense? I mean, God, if People Magazine wanted a seven-page spread now, I mean, yes, <laughs> I'd give anything. I'd sell my phone. Right. How, how much do I have to pay for that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's not happening anymore. The world is very different and my yeah. career is very different. And But then I was just, you know, rather than thinking, oh, my God, People Magazine are coming. It's amazing. I was just like, oh, seven-hour photo shoot. You know? <laughs> I was so bloody ungrateful. I just had no idea. The hubris uh, of youth. I'm betting that you're exaggerating just a little bit no, in terms maybe, of being ungrateful. Maybe just a little bit. I am a storyteller, bud. Right. So when that first book hits and then you start, and there are a lot of books, is there, first of all, is there an early moment either with the first book or one of the first books where it dawns on you, oh, wait, wait a minute, I had this idea uh, I've written it and, and now it's gone out into the world and I show up somewhere, forget about like a book tour where, you know, people are going to be reading it, but I, I saw someone like, you know, reading it on the train or something like that. So that remains 27 years later, that remains 
as exciting today as it was back then. It's the unexpected viewing when you you see somebody on a train or on a beach or in a wherever it is reading your book, and it it is as thrilling to me today as it was back then. Do you remember a first time? Um, I think the first time was in, uh, it was actually in a bookstore in London, which I think has now gone called Books, etc. And I remember somebody standing in line waiting to buy my book. And I was so excited. And I went and tapped them on the shoulder. And I said, I'm so sorry to trouble you, but that's my book. And and they looked around as if I were some crazy stalker. They were, they were kind of horrified that I'd had the temerity to go up to them. Um, and in fact, in fact, then after I walked away, sort of embarrassed that I'd gone over at all, I saw them look at the back of the book to check my photograph. And of course, um, and of course it was an author photograph, which is, you know, beautifully lit and, and yeah. never looks anything like you. Um, but I still have to go up to talk to people. Even today, if I see anybody reading my book, I can't help myself. I just, I have to go over and say something because it's still the most exciting thing. As the success starts with the, the initial books, is there a sense of, okay, I've got something here and this is what I'm going to write? Or along the way, almost like a musician who has success and then looks at, oh, maybe I'll try something like this or not to go completely out of their realm, but is it a, a case of, okay, I'm going to be writing these types of books or through the years has it, is it not quite uh, that analytical? It's a little bit more mysterious than that. And is there a notion of, oh, I'm going to branch out and do some different types of books along the way? So I think that um, I really, I had no idea. I mean, I didn't have a plan. I, I fell in, I stumbled into it. I never really thought about what I wanted to write, but I knew that I I couldn't write to please an audience. I knew that that would be a mistake. If I started to think about what might be a bestseller or what would be successful, that was right. going to be a recipe for disaster. But if I told the stories that were important to me or the stories that that were stuck in my head or that I wanted to tell, I had to trust that my audience would come along with me. Um, and I still believe that to be true. I am. Mean, it's harder now than ever before. But I would still say never, ever make the mistake of writing a book that you think will be a bestseller because you're by the whatever you think it will. By the time you finished it, the world will have moved on. Um, and so I think you just you have to be true to yourself and tell the story you you are needing to tell the one that's bursting out of you. Like a musician who uh, writes a song that becomes a good song, and of course, good is subjective, or um, a comedian with a bit that, that will work. Do you know, after all these years, do you know when you've got something? Do you know when you've written something that, oh, that I really like the way that flows, and that will definitely work? Or is it, again, there's there some uh, myst uh, mysterious quality to it that, you write what you're going to do and you put it out there and you hope that it works for people. So I think for me, I would say the last few years, I've put it out there and hope 
but it's worked. But I think there is an alchemy that can happen. And actually, one of my dear friends is Jean Hanf Korolitz, and mm. she had a huge hit last year with the plot. She also wrote the book, a book called You Should Have Known, which became a hit Netflix show during COVID called The Undoing with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. And when Jean, when she came up with the idea for the plot, I, I was I was with her, I was with her that night, and I remember her kind of rubbing her hands together in sort of disbelief and and joy, like she said, "I've got the most extraordinary plot for a for a book." And she still says that from the beginning she knew it was different. Everything about that book felt different to her, um, and she's had a number of books turned into into movies. Um, and TV shows, but there was something about the plot. She knew she'd hit it right. And just, just there's an alchemy that happens. Um, and, and am I that tuned into it? I don't know. I don't know that I ever really knew that actually. My biggest books were, my biggest book was, was a book called Jemima J, which was my first book to be published here, which sold millions. Um, but then I, you know, the beach house was a huge hit second chance. I, I didn't know, actually, it just, you just turn them out into the world. And I, I would hope. Does the success of those books or any of the other books, does it play a role in the writing of the next book as in, all right, maybe you're struggling one day, it's not working for whatever reason, but just the knowledge that you've done it before does experience play a role or is every new book a blank canvas? Gosh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I think that every book is a new book, new characters, new situations, new everything. And yet experience will, will tell you that on those days when you feel like you've got nothing to say and there's there's nothing in you and you can't do it anymore experience will has taught me that you have to just keep writing that that's not actually true and that the you know writing is a discipline and if you just keep writing eventually at some point the words it will all start flow it will that's how you unlock the creativity the only way to unlock the creativity is to write through it and so initially it feels like you're squeezing blood from a stone and you're you know every word is a slog but then all of a sudden oh oh something happens and you it and suddenly your character is doing something interesting and oh suddenly it gets easier and 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 then you're back in the flow the uh screenwriter tony gilroy told me recently that uh who most famous for the born films and now doing the andor series the star wars series his father frank gilroy uh pulitzer prize winning playwright he says he didn't learn how to write from his father but he saw the life he saw what the life was like and i'm curious if uh, early, especially early on, if you had friends or colleagues or maybe the, the person that you talk about at the, at the newspaper or the woman you knew from the magazine, did, was there anyone who you could look at and say, OK, that's what the life is going to be like in terms of the work life and, and how to be successful and just kind of accomplishing that life? I think I thought that it was it. I remember that old movie, Crossing Delancey. 
Do you remember crossing Delancey and, and Amy? Peter Rieger, happy to say, is uh, interviewed and has become a friend. So, oh. yes, I love crossing Delancey. Oh, well, I remember watching that movie years ago, and I remember that the man she had a crush on, She, I think she was a publicist and, and the writer, and, and I remember him having a sort of literary salon in a wonderful bookstore in New York, and he sat on a chair, and everybody sat at his feet, gazing adoringly up at him. And and I think I, I think... I thought my life would be a bit like that. Um, it, and I suppose in some ways it has been. I mean, I, you know, I do these wonderful events. and uh, But the writer's life, I don't know that I've had a typical writer's life. I mean, I, you know, writing commercial fiction is also very different from writing literary fiction. Um, so sometimes you're slightly frowned upon by the more literary world, although I would say 99% of the time I've, I've had, you know, most of my friends are in the more literary world and they are delightful and I have never felt any different to them. Um, but to what my, my writing, look, I, I was so blessed for so long. I really was. It was very, very charmed. I was... I, I feel like I came of age in the last golden age of publishing. I came in, in terms of as a writer. I My success was at a time when publishers still had teams of people to support you. My only job was to write the best book I could possibly write and then go out on tour and promote it. Now, today, my job is to write the best book I can possibly write, to go on tour and promote it, to be my own marketing manager, to be my own publicist, to uh, reach out to everybody I know to try and set up events, to organize my own event. I mean, it's it, it's a very, very different world. It's, it's, and honestly, it's this is why I've moved into the podcast world, because it's brutal. And I'm I just feel like I've... I've had my moment. I've had a joyful, wonderful career, and I don't need to fight this hard to get it back. I'd rather take on a new challenge. Understood. But still, the beauty of a book is that once it's out there, it's out there. And somewhere, some 15-year-old or 16-year-old or whoever might somehow get a copy of one of your books and pick it up. There's still beauty in that, I think. There, there, the tentacles of art that you don't know where it's going to extend to. Yeah, no, that and and that is absolutely true. And I would say, you know, the problem is that you start competing against yourself. And so, you know, it, it becomes I mean, I, I and and I I try I, I worked very hard on appreciating the journey rather than the destination because I I learned very quickly that you you put all of these pressures on yourself like well well this is great I've got a New York Times bestseller but I'll only be happy if I'm in the top ten and then you're in the top ten and then you go well I'll only be happy if I'm number one. <laughs> Well, now, because the thing is, whenever you reach that goal, it doesn't feel yeah. the way you think it's going to feel. You never quite feel sure. fulfilled. So you just move the goalposts a little bit more. Well, when I get a movie and then you get a movie and, so, uh, you know, when do you stop? Um, I do appreciate the beauty in that. But, you know, I also have a family to support and yeah. and I can't I can't keep working the way you're now required to work for the, the you know for three people to love my book 
I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to have the kind of financial freedom to be able to do that. But unfortunately, I've got four kids in college at the same time. Speaking of which, once they got to a certain age, did any of them on a on a Tuesday in February kind of walk by and say, "Hey, mom, uh, let me, I'll read that one. Give give me that one." Any of them ever read any of your or your books? Forgive me for saying this, but they are absolute bastards, and they none of them read my books. I'm sorry. Uh, let me write this down here for one second. We want to make sure we get this. I am absolutely really. Oh well. Okay. Now, see, now we're getting. Now we're getting rolling. No, I now we're getting rolling. Now we can start rolling the tape. Now we can start recording here. I tell a lie. One of them. I have one voracious reader amongst them, Jasper. And I remember when we we went to the Bahamas, and Jasper must have been about eight years old. And I happened to have a copy of one of my books and Jasper had whatever he was reading at the time. It was probably Pitticus Law, I Am Number Four or something like that. Or <laughs> Rick Riordan books. He, you know, and he'd just gone through it and he said, Mum, Mum, I've got nothing to read. Have you got anything I can read? And I was like, I want my book. I want family pictures. <laughs> he took it. He took it and he read it. I mean, he was a baby. He was a little boy. And he read it. He was like, Mum, this is very good. <laughs> he really enjoyed it. Which not, is a, not, only a, a, not only your child, but he's a critic also. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. But That's other awesome. than that, no, they, they, they do not read my books. No. What, we're going to have to work on them. Yeah. We're yeah. going to have to work on them. Yeah. Um, you had an idea years ago. And uh, you talked, as you talked earlier about the enjoyment that that reading gave you. And then you had an idea as a young woman and it happened. It happened. Uh, When you're going through the writing, are you just so busy with the next project that there's no time for reflection or and understanding the, the trials and tribulations of the period that we're in right now, as you've talked about eloquently, but. Have you allowed yourself through the years to kind of take a step back and say, you know what, I had this idea and it worked? Yeah, I, th- I think I have. And and my friends have said I am that they, they they have point they point out or because I'm very hard on myself and and my friends will point out that I am the queen of self-actualization I I do have the ability to see something in my head and make it happen and I'm not quite sure how I do that but I have always somehow managed to do that um so I am I, I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware of of the of the luck I've had. And really, and 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 when I say luck, it isn't just luck. It, it's 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 the combination of enormously hard work. And by the way, for as much as I talk about my amazing career, I worked so hard. It's the combination of enormously hard work, persistence, um, and talent, um, determination, and passion, and opportunity, and recognizing the opportunity when it arose. So it's a whole, it's a whole sort of conflux of things that that led to my, my successful career. And I'm very aware that my part in it was only one part. 
I, I, I had one part to contribute and it was timing. It was it was many, many things. But I don't I'm not sort of arrogant enough to, to think, well, I was just enormously talented. I think there were so many things that went into it. I think I, I am good at self-actualization and I am also I'm a, I'm a worker. I'm really I'm a very, very hard worker. I'm still very driven. And um, and I, I like to think that I recognize opportunity when it presents itself. No truth to the rumor that a character in your next book is a, a middle-aged man who uh, plays the guitar who uh, uh, from upstate New York. This is my, this my feeble you? way. Of, who told oh, you? This is awesome. This is awesome. <laughs> Mary, Mary I, I once did a profile of Mary Higgins Clark, and she talked about one time she got a bad review from the guy, and so she put him in the next book and and killed him off. And and I said I said to her, "You mean if I do a bad profile of you, you'll put me in the next book?" She said, "Maybe." maybe. Just maybe. You know what there is that I somebody once gave me. I think it was a baseball cap, and it was like, "Be careful." What did it say? I, I don't have it anymore, but it was something like, "Be careful." Be careful what you te- be careful what you say, or you'll end up in my next novel. And there's also a cartoon that I had um, in my office for years. I think it may have been in the New Yorker, where you had a, a young woman sitting at a behind a signing table with books stacked up, and her parents um, were coming to her book signing, and they stood in front of her and they said, "If we'd known you were going to be a novelist, we would have been nicer to you." <laughs> Or perhaps more interesting. You, last thing, you mentioned that you and your father on the phone had a giggle over the, the amount for that first book. Um, did your parents eventually kind of come around and say, wow, you know, oh, yeah. you had this idea? I, well, my, my father was very, um, he, was, he was very excited by money. And so from that moment onwards, I, I suddenly, I went from being, um, you know, the daughter that I, I went from being difficult Jane. Jane is difficult. We must worry about Jane. Suddenly, Jane is an angel. Jane is perfect. <laughs> Jane can do no wrong. <laughs> Difficult angel. It's all in the terminology. Yeah. Yeah. Jane, this has been an absolute treat. The the pleasure has been all mine, bud. Thank you. Just a delight. Jane Green. She's the founder of the new podcast network, Emerald Audio, whose pitch line is connection and community through female-driven storytelling. Emerald's first two immersive fiction podcasts, Rainbow Girl and The Key of Love, are available now wherever you get your podcasts. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. Thank you as always to editor Lou Pellegrino. We have some terrific episodes coming up, including conversations with chef and writer Gabrielle Hamilton, music impresario Michael Dorff, baseball broadcaster Susan Waldman, personal finance advocate Gene Chatsky, and the wonderful actor and storyteller par excellence, Richard Kind. And check out our rich backlog of episodes with a wide variety of wonderful guests, including broadcaster Bob Costas, fashion design icon Norma Kamali, musician, actor, and activist Stephen Van Zant, and many more. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey. Mm-hmm.